Chapter One of Red Arrows in the Night by Daniel A. Lord S.J. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Therese. Red Arrows in the Night by Daniel A. Lord S.J. Chapter One Perhaps the only joke in the whole strange experience was the fact that I, Luke Foster, should be mixed up with arrows. Gunnery is my specialty, the most modern of modern gunnery, anti-aircraft fire. And then into my life comes a flight of medieval arrows. I'd been working, on army assignment, on something new in projectiles, always with the latest type of aviation gunner in mind. And then, out of history, and apparently out of the black earth, pops the scarlet archer of Agincourt. If you remember your history, you recall that the Battle of Agincourt, in which archers won their greatest triumph, took place quite a few moons ago. Incidentally, I have spent most of the twenty-six years of my still happily young life bragging that I'd be keen to see a ghost. Then, when one turned up... But I mustn't anticipate my story. We'll come to all that in the proper order. I had packed my bag and instructed an orderly to have it put on the northbound train. The thought of my two weeks' leave was enough to make me turn cartwheels, if the regulations had permitted cartwheels to artillery captains. In fact, I didn't even mind that for two weeks the experiments on our magnetic bullets would be at a standstill. When I commented on this to Sergeant Willoughby, he grinned and pointed to my briefcase packing to bursting point with papers. Then why, Captain, he asked politely, but with due irony, are you lugging all the drawings and plans along with you? Wilhelmy wasn't just an ordinary sergeant. Even in those days it was my calm conviction that some day, soon, he'd be sitting at a polished desk and giving me orders. Wilhelmy had taken his Ph.D. in physics at Marquette, where they talked for many a day about the experiments he developed in ballistics. He'd been assigned to work with me on what might be either a crack-brained idea or something very important in the defense program. And we were, the three of us, great friends and fellow enthusiasts. But I haven't mentioned the third of us, Tim Erkenwold, first lieutenant now on his leave. If you'd like me to, Willoughby suggested tentatively, I'll work over that batch of mathematics while you're gone. And grab all the credit for the job? We joshed each other man-fashion, and enjoyed our intramural insults. Not on your life. If any credit comes out of this thing, it comes to the officers, not to some upstart non-com. But five minutes later, Wilhelmy and I, in defiance of train time, were poring over the duplicate set of drawings I decided to leave with him, and we were plotting out the work he'd do during the weeks of my absence. I can't give you many of the details of our work, the government has tucked it in with the other military secrets. I'll just mention that the three of us were working on a new principle in gunnery. Normally, a bullet finds its objective with merely the assistance of the gun that fires it, and the men who sight the gun. We had brought into play, at least on paper, and in a few limited experiments, a new factor. The tremendous amount of metal in a modern plane, plus the vast quantities of electricity that is constantly generated by that metal, could give a force that might we thought, help guide the bullet to its objective. Why couldn't bullets be drawn as well as propelled? 
if we argued we could develop small highly explosive shells that could not only be shot from a gun pointed in a definite direction but be drawn by the metal plane towards the objective crudely put that was our job and as i say we knew that on a small scale it worked bullets could be aimed at a metal objective but our magnetized bullets could then be pulled on their course by the force of attraction in the moving plane to the accuracy of the gun and to the direction given the bullet by the men who sight the gun we had added another element the magnetic pull of the moving plane the chances of hitting enemy bombers would when the invention was perfected be vastly increased so i say we hoped great scott i cried looking at my wrist watch train time i picked up my briefcase gave will and me a pat on the shoulder flung open the door of our little lab and almost bumped into an orderly. I came to an abrupt and undignified halt. Captain Foster, he said, and asked in a breath, special delivery letter and package. I grabbed them both, signed rapidly, and tore for the car that was to carry me to my train and a much-needed vacation. I still find it hard to think of holidays as leaves. They're vacations to me, army or no army. As the car sped toward the station, I slid open the letter with my thumb. The handwriting on the envelope was Tim Erkenwold's. The postmark was the little town where the Erkenwold estate was located. I am sure my eyes popped as I read the letter. It was brief, but Tim wasn't much of a letter writer. What he said now was plenty. Dear Luke, here I come to gum up your leave, but will you spend the two weeks with me here at Arrow Anchorage? I can't offer you much by way of fun. And I know your heart is set on New York and the bright lights. But, old man, I need you. It's terribly important that you come. Would you be amused if I said that I am frightened? Perhaps your ghost-hunting soul will impel you to do what you'd otherwise avoid. For I'm not joking when I tell you that the scarlet archer walks again. Please come. Tim. So when I bought my ticket at the little station, which was now swelled to importance by the bulging camp that had attached itself to a normally somnolent village, it read, not New York, but the little town near Arrow Anchorage. If Tim wrote like that, it was important that I go to him. We'd been pals ever since our freshman days at Fordham, so what could I do but deflect in his direction? Forgive me if I do not name the town or even the state. These are dangerous days. One can talk, but not too explicitly. Democratic freedom permits talk. Democratic danger prohibits too detailed information. But this much I can tell, and I will. I was heading for a section of the Atlantic coast, where the ocean is normally fairly calm, and where along the steep and rocky shore American colonists, way back in the seventeenth century, had anchored their estates. They had brought from England a host of English customs, from butlers to fox-hunting, from a taste for tea to a love of liberty, and the intervening centuries had changed the customs not at all. But the national emergency had made one change in the district. Slightly to the south of the Erkenwold estate, Arrow Anchorage was another little town situated on what had been, in its day, one of the busiest ports of the Yankee Clippers. After a hundred years of tourists and tea shops and artist colonies, the town had suddenly grown tremendously important. An enormous airfield had been leveled off back of the town, a base for naval aviation, and the Coast Guard artillery had dug in built up, and behind their new fortifications, started the installation of the biggest guns our arsenals could provide. 
the train cut through the early autumn landscapes at express speed i like trains they make me feel relaxed and at ease being in the artillery i should i suppose prefer to ride in an armored tank i don't i like the luxury of a pullman and the complete isolation possible to a man who thrust a book between himself and the rest of the traveling public but this time i couldn't precisely relax tim's letter had been almost like a cryptogram thrown my way a cipher packed with meaning if only one had the missing key the curiosity and even the slight anxiety i felt about tim served as file clerk to drag up out of my memory all i could remember about tim erkenwold and his life story he had told it to me in dribs and drabs during the winter evenings in St. John's Hall at Fordham. He talked especially long and revealingly when he got word that Christopher, his only brother, had been killed on a wild animal hunt in Africa. That was five years ago, our senior year. He took Christopher's death hard. Evidently that brother had been a grand chap, interested in everything from amateur dramatics to big game hunting, from expert tennis to Catholic action. Oh, yes, Tim's family had brought the faith with them from Tudor England, and they had lost none of it along the way of the centuries. Tim's father, retired shipping tycoon, James Emerson Erkenwold, had taken his son's death almost stoically. Even the fact that his eldest son and the heir to the anchorage had been buried in the jungles of Africa had not moved him to resentment or bitterness. Tim said his father made a public act of faith before the friends who came to prod him on to resentment, sent them away with wonder in their eyes and a slightly deeper sense of a Catholic's attitude toward death. Three years later, when he had finished his doctorate in physics, Tim wrote me briefly. An uncle who had been with Chris on that fatal big game hunt had come to live with him. He had escaped with his life when the rhino had charged, but he was a helpless cripple, condemned by the accident that had killed the younger man, to spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair. I could tell from Tim's first letter that he didn't go in strong for Uncle Henry Forsyth Erkenwold. Should be called Frostbite, he wrote semi-humorously. Well, Tim and I were together in the government laboratories the following year, just twelve months before this strange and adventurous leave, when Tim's father died. Tim arrived too late to see him alive, but not too late for the reading of the will. That will was a blow from which after twelve months he had not yet recovered for while his father had left him a moderately comfortable annuity that was to last as long as he lived, and make him independent, though far from rich, heir or anchorage, and the bulk of his property he had left to his younger brother, Uncle Henry Forsyth Erkenwold. When Tim came back he didn't refer to the will. Certainly he knew that I'd read in the papers the story of what seemed almost like a father's disowning of his son. Instead, he plunged into our intensely accurate work with just a sincere thank you to my condolence. It wasn't until three months later that he broke down. He had been, he confessed, stunned. It's not, he said, that I care a snap for the money, Luke. You know that. Of course I love Arrow Anchorage. It's been handed down from father to son since the first Catholic Erkenwold fled England for the colonies. Naturally, I wish it were mine. But what hurts is that my father did this to me. He must have loved his younger brother, who after all had spent almost all his life in Europe and Africa better than he loved me. He preferred him to have the anchorage, as if he'd take better care of the place, its traditions, its memories, and history, yes, its future, than I would. I talked the inanities with which we tried to explain the inexplicable and to console the inconsolable, 
Finally, I did toss him a straw of hope. This uncle of yours has no heirs, I said. In the long run, the property will probably come to you anyhow. Tim looked at me as if he were hurt by my obtuseness. Would I want to inherit from my uncle what my father preferred me not to have? That settled that. Three months later, a gossip columnist writing in a New York paper presented the gawking world, and Tim and me, with an amazing bit of news. Madame Vivian Leclerc once was the toast, or so we hear, of the Paris Opera House. The toast is on fire once more. She has been seen in the best restaurants and at all the better plays with Henry Forsyth Erkenwold, whose famous air anchorage could do with a charming mistress. Anyhow, if we were the master of A.A., we'd rather have our wheelchair propelled by the fascinating Leclerc than by the far from attractive bodyguard and valet, who now shoves it around. I found Tim reading the column thoughtfully. He wanted to talk, and he did. If his uncle married, then his, Tim's, claims on the anchorage were gone forever. For on the principle of there being no fool like an old fool, if Uncle Henry attached himself to a collapsed actress, it wasn't likely that he would deny her the future security which might make up for a crippled husband. The train gave a sudden, unexplained jolt, and down from the rack, where the porter had carelessly balanced it, slipped the special delivery package that had accompanied the leather. I had forgotten about it. Now I tore it open, and found that the wrappings contained an old-fashioned book. The pages were yellow and loose, the binding of heavy leather, which had long since begun to rot. It was one of those early nineteenth-century histories of an American family, with hand engravings of stiff-looking men and relaxed-looking ladies in formidable buildings surrounded by the most starched of formal gardens. The History of the Erkenwold Family read the title. The book bore no author's name. I skipped the pages that told the early story of the Erkenwolds in England, their coming to their religious refuge in America, their building of arrow anchorage to reproduce as far as possible the ancestral mansion they had lost because of their faith. Then I noticed that Tim, evidently the sender of the book, had indicated one section for my attention. On a sheet of foolscap he had written, This may interest you. The chapter was headed, The Scarlet Archer of the Erkenwold. I synopsized the stilted entire simile written passages, though I confess that I read them with consuming interest. Tim had once told me, jokingly, of the legend of the Scarlet Archer, and though, as I have already confessed, my tongue fairly hangs out, or it did hang out, at the thought of seeing a ghost, I paid scant attention to the apparently ridiculous tale. But here it was in cold print. The first of the Erkenwolds, the writer explained, had been an archer at Agincourt, when, with the flying arrows of his English bowman, Henry V, ended the dominance of the mailed and armored knights. After the battle, Henry had knighted a score of these archers, among them the ancestor of the Erkenwolds. Scarlet was his jerkin, wrote the author, with stilted inversions, and red were his arrows. From that memorable hour, the Scarlet Archer became not only the forebear of the long line of noble Erkenwolds, but the prototype on which was fashioned the family ghost. Then the writer went on with the legend of the family ghost. As long as the family remained in England, tradition held that the death of an important Erkenwold was heralded by the apparition of the Scarlet Archer. Rising against the sky, the author continued, usually on a gently sloping hill within the ancestral domain, and usually within easy eyeshot of the mansion, the Scarlet Archer would appear. He was always clad like the first of the Erkenwolds at Agincourt. Whenever he lifted his bow and shot an arrow into the air, a red arrow that showed bloodily against the moon, 
Death was stalking in Erkenwold. Death that would strike within a month its deadly, arrow-like blow. Here Tim had penciled faintly. Note, when this happened, each member of the family was measured for a coffin. The count that followed I again synopsized. When the family fled to America, they thought they were leaving a scarlet archer behind. Ghosts do not, as a rule, cross the water with the families that claim them. Not so this scarlet archer, the writer continued. Rumor hath it that more than once in America, both in colonial days and since these United States have raised their proud heads along the Atlantic sea coast, the scarlet archer, on several well-authenticated occasions. Again Tim had scratched in pencil. I read it with difficulty. A month ago I should have laughed at this. Today? The train paused, and I glanced out of the window. We were skirting the boundaries of the magnificent flying field, and I could make out between me and the ocean contours and shapes of land that might have escaped a lay eye. To me they indicated coast artillery emplacements. With a feeling of real pride I took in what I could see of barracks and shops and the varied equipment of a great coastal defense. We moved again across a narrow but swift-moving stream that flowed down into the ocean, then past beautifully kept fields, until with a jerk we pulled up at my little station. It was almost as if the engineer resented having to stop at so small a town, and jolted us to indicate his disapproval. I piled out with my two bags in my briefcase, onto the platform, and saw that the station was deserted. I watched the train pull away. I was stranded. Stupidly I had forgotten to wire the time of my arrival. Then I looked up. From the far side of the tracks a railroad tramp was walking his slouchy way. He headed directly for me, dirty from the road, unshaven and unkempt. But when he spoke his voice was that of an educated man, and his language was clipped, exact English. Sorry, he said, but if you could lend me a cigarette. I smiled at his choice of verb. He took the cigarette out of the pack almost daintily. He nodded in appreciation as I held up my lighter. The flame gave me an almost photographic image of his face. Then, as he turned away and sat down on the station platform, I forgot all about him. The station yielded up automatic lockers. I threw my two bags safely inside one of them turned the key, and with my briefcase under my arm, took the only road that led away from the station, and of a consequence must, I thought, move toward the anchorage. My query at the little village gas station confirmed my direction, and I swung down past the general store, the post office, the three churches, one of them Catholic, and into the black-surfaced road toward my destination. It was a lovely late autumn afternoon, with the trees turning gypsy around me, and the sun stroking my face and uncovered head as would a gentle old mother. A turn in the road brought me within sight of the vast old pile that was the Erkenwold mansion. Over the slight rise of land beyond, I could hear the faint beat of the ocean upon a rocky shore. As I swung along the last mile of my journey, night came down with the swift thud of mid-autumn. Wide, ancient gates, open and apparently never used. A winding road twisting up through magnificent elm trees toward the house, and to my right what seemed to be a little porter's lodge. The estate had no walls. Instead, it seemed to be hemmed in with high, untrimmed hedges that created a thick, interwoven density. There was a light on the first floor of the porter's lodge, but since the lights in the main building so clearly beckoned me, I decided to waste no time in useless questions. The gravel of the drive crunched under my feet as I swung into the gateway and up the drive. A voice brought me around with a quick whirl that almost threw me off my balance. Yet all the voice said was, 
Well. The door of the porter's lodge was now open. A deep shadow was thrown about it by the faintness of the light in the room beyond. The door jamb served as a frame for the grotesque figure silhouetted between the deepening gloom of the outdoors and the pale light of the house's interior. Perhaps because the man was in silhouette, the grotesqueness of his figure stood out in repellent relief. I had the feelings that here was a head on which the hair had been tousled by the ages, hair defiant of any comb that might attack it, matted, unparted, with locks astray in all directions. The head itself, on which in the gloom I could hardly distinguish a face, was set deep in hunched shoulders. He turned slightly, and I saw that, tall as he seemed in the darkness, the man was a hunchback. Involuntarily I took a step forward to speak to him, in that instant I could feel his eyes sweep me from shoe to hair and back again. What light came from the house tipped me squarely. His inventory of me seemed so thorough that I felt as if he had subjected me to a complete investigation. Some unimportant question or other was trying to frame itself on my lips, some greeting that I could give to the sentinel who had popped out of his mysterious sentry-box to halt me. But before words took shape, the man had backed away, and the door slammed in my face with a rude dismissal that I know must have made me flush. Impulse almost made me batter with my fist at that unmannerly door. Second and wiser thought made me shrug my shoulders and hit down the graveled road toward the light in the main house. Quite without volition, I found myself turning to look back over my shoulder at the lodge, in which a light now seemed to move from window to window. I'll be seeing the scarlet archer myself, I thought, trying to laugh. Yet, had the scarlet archer suddenly barred my path, for the second I should not have been surprised. Tim's welcome made me forget the rank and hospitality of the lodge-keeper. Hardly had the butler opened the door and answered to my ring, when Tim pushed him aside and caught my hand and slapped my shoulder affectionately. No doubt about it. The man was happy to see me. It's nice to be made welcome. Sometimes, however, and this was one of those occasions, Extreme cordiality makes me nervous and suspicious. Where are your bags? And why in the world didn't you wire me when you'd arrive? Was it a tiresome trip? Aren't you a great guy to come like this? Tim had a way of asking a dozen questions in a breath, not really caring whether or not you paid any attention to the trivial ones, if you picked out the ones you yourself wanted to answer. In a jiffy he had given the butler orders about retrieving my bags. He's not Dad's butler. Tim apologized. Uncle Henry brought him in. We had adjoining rooms on the second floor. The rooms had been allowed to keep all the mill the beauty of their original design. Paneled walls, great deep beds, window seats of carved wood, and ceilings that would have given an antique collector severe temptations against the tenth commandment. But Tim's father had modernized the rooms to the extent of fitting indirect lighting into the pattern of the original design and installing a bath that made one rejoice for the twentieth century. Tim talked to nanities, or rather the pleasant nothings, which served to cover nervousness, and bridge the time-lapse between the meetings of friends. I told him what little had developed in the lab since his brief leave had begun. All the while it was clear that he was merely skittishing around the edges of the main subject on his mind, the subject that had made him send for me, and had made me, though I could not so much as Gasset's meeting, detour from a planned vacation. When I saw that he was waiting for his cue, I gave it. Amusing passage in that book, I said, squatting in the deep window seat as I talked. About that scarlet archer, you know. 
"'What's the matter, Tim? "'Hasn't he heard that ghosts went out with modern plumbing? "'When your dad installed that,' I waved at the modern improvements, "'he gave all the family ghosts their quietus. "'Tim sat down opposite me, leaning against the deep embrasure "'into which the leaded window had been sunk, and lit a cigarette. "'You talk a lot about ghosts,' he said quietly, "'but of course you don't really believe in them.' "'Why not?' I demanded. I've always said that I wished I had seen a ghost. Yes, I remember the day you said that. You wish you had seen one. Maybe, my lad, you're going to see one right here. I laughed in embarrassment. It's hard for a student of physics to be too serious when his best friend promises to let him have a ringside seat at the walking of a ghost. Tim let an astral cloud of smoke fill the embrasure. What puzzles me, he said quietly, is why I decided to spend my leave here at all. Perhaps I just wanted to tell myself I could do it. I was so cut up when Dad gave the place to his brother. I love the place. In that will, Dad didn't say I must stay away from the place. Perhaps I wanted to see what Uncle had done to it. Much? I interrupted. Enough, he answered. He stood up and so did I. Anyhow, here I am, and so apparently is the archer, I wonder if the error is meant for me this time. He must have seen the puzzled look on my face. The legend, Luke, the archer appears, and Urkenwold dies. Am I to be the one? His grip on my shoulders was meant to be reassuring. His answering laugh had no ring in it. Come, he commanded. Dinner won't be for a bit. Let me show you something interesting or queer. He swung out of the room, down the broad, beautifully carved stairs, into the big drawing-room, and then through heavy velvet curtains, and into the dim dining-hall. Hall was really the word. No one could remotely call that magnificent apartment a mere room. He switched on a wall-bracket light that threw soft yellow beams down the rich, old-age stained panels. I saw him stroke with his fingers a spot in the wall. Then as I leaned forward, I realized that it was not a spot. It was a clean cut in the wood, made as if someone had expertly driven a knife-blade but not too deeply, into the timber. Tim did not withdraw his hand as he talked quietly. We were sitting at table the evening before last. Dinner was practically over. Uncle sits here. He indicated the head of the table. I sit here. He touched the chair to his uncle's right, and I saw that it was embarrassingly close to the gash in the wall. Suddenly I looked up and almost screamed. Why I didn't say a word, I don't know. But I sat there silently. This time I saw that he was pointing. Across from where we stood were magnificently arched glass doors, or double windows, which reached from floor to ceiling. Even now they were swung wide open, so that the arch framed the dark garden beyond. But it was easy to see out, for the sky seemed a sort of grey-green backdrop, against which I was sure the movement of people could be clearly visible. Tim let me take in the stage setting before he continued. Along that slight rise of land, which is the highest point between us and the sea, I suddenly saw, laugh if you want to, but it is the plain fact, a medieval archer, quietly so as not to frighten the ladies. It was the first time he referred to any ladies. I touched my uncle's hand and nodded toward the figure. From the look on his face I knew that he saw the archer too. The figure, the ghost, whatever it was, lifted a bow. There was a faint twang of a bowstring, and an arrow buried itself here. Again he touched the wound in the wall. 
perhaps you've never had your best friend tell you he was shot at by a ghost i had never been told that before i don't want to be told it again i tried to laugh but it was a poor retort tim walked behind his uncle's place and came to the enormous buffet that filled the wall quietly he picked up something and held it out to me i looked down at the thing i had mechanically accepted it was an ancient arrow straight and tipped with metal and the shaft was painted a bright red a message from the scarlet archer of agincourt said tim quietly and for a moment i am frank enough to confess i was frightened too end of chapter one recording by maria therese